Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational program, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. By now, you've heard that the Trump administration is pulling the United States out of the Paris Climate Agreement. And in the wake of that decision, I wanted to get a sense of the consequences of the United States leaving the Paris Accords to both the climate change goals embedded in the Paris Agreement and also to the wider diplomacy that surrounds global climate change issues. So today I bring you two perspectives on these very timely questions. First, I speak with Paula Caballero of the World Resources Institute, who does a good job of explaining the kinds of global implications of this decision. Then I speak with Pete Ogden of the United Nations Foundation, and we discuss the linkages between federal and subnational domestic politics, like the actions of mayors and governors, to perhaps mitigate some of the worst outcomes of this decision. So if you are a regular listener to the show, you know that on Mondays, I typically post longer conversations with someone who's had a fascinating, interesting career in foreign policy, and they talk me through their life and career with digressions about some of the big historic foreign policy events that their life and career has intersected along the way. But given the timeliness of this conversation, of these conversations, these two interviews I did, I wanted to post them now a little early. And then later in the week, I'll I'll have another longer episode for you. As always, if you have questions for me, if you have suggestions of topics I should cover, people I should interview, go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the contact link and send me an email. I do love hearing from you. Now, here is Paula Caballero. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The Paris Agreement has a target of keeping to 1.5 degrees or under 2 degrees. Um, which uh, science has indicated is needed to avoid some of the most more catastrophic impacts of climate change. The closer we can stay to 1.5 degrees, uh, the better it is. We're already seeing enormous impacts around the world of climate change, and these will only increase in both magnitude and severity and uh, spread even more greatly across the globe. Uh, affecting economic development, affecting social development, affecting very hard-won development gains. So um, the very resounding support that the Paris Agreement has received speaks to the fact that constituencies, governments, private sectors, citizens around the world 
really understand it. The way in which the Paris Agreement seeks to limit the sort of future emissions under two degrees is in part by uh, a collection of voluntary contributions made by some of the world's major emitters. What was the U.S.'s, what's called in the intended nationally determined contribution, the INDC? What, what did the U.S. bring to the table in terms of its own commitment to reduce climate? And, and how might that, be, um, might that be affected by a decision to, to pull out of the Paris Agreement? Look, the Paris Agreement was crafted in a very unique, unique way, and I think that that's what makes it really a, a, one of the most amazing global achievements in recent memory. And it's been crafted bottom-up. That means that rather than being a top-down imposed target, a globally imposed target that countries then have to commit to, it did it the other way around. What it did is bottom up, i.e. every country has the opera that joins the Paris Agreement, and by now all countries in the world except for two have done so. Every country puts forward what is essentially their climate action plan. It is what's called their nationally determined contribution, and the title says it all. It's nationally determined, and each country decides what it's going to contribute to that global target that we were just discussing. So there's nothing imposed um, and there is nothing here that is um, forcing countries to take action in ways that are not aligned with whatever they feel is the most that they can do. Uh, moreover, it's obviously we need the countries that are the major emitters to take more decisive action. Um, many countries around the world that are suffering the greatest brunt of climate change, actually, no matter how much they do, because their emissions are already so low, is not going to make a very big difference. So obviously we need all countries to step up, but we need the major emitters to do so much more decisively. But the fact is that this is uh, an agreement that encompasses all countries and to which all countries have really felt that it is something that they are willing to sign up to and to align their development strategies with it. So the fact that the U.S. Has, is one of those countries that has committed to it must be understood in that, that broader context, that this is something, uh, that this is an agreement that the U.S. has signed on to that itself can determine exactly how it's going to meet those targets. And, 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 and so what, was the, what is or what was the U.S. plan to meet that, those targets as envisioned by the Obama administration? Well, the Obama administration had a series of, of actions, um, both at federal uh, level, uh, as well as, and that were very much complemented at subnational level. You had the Clean uh, Power Plan, which has now been um, effectively sidelined, and other efforts that were involved, what are called non-CO2, uh, non um, such as methane, and uh, an array of, of uh, actions that were going to be uh, collectively help the U.S. deliver on its targets of staying, uh, of uh, reducing emissions 25 to 28%. Um, well, the question now, I think, is whether in the absence of action at federal level, the U.S. will be able to deliver on its climate um, uh, commitments. And this is where we really see that if the U.S. does pull out of the agreement, it will be very important to see much more um, enhanced action at subnational level. But we're already seeing that from states, from major American cities, uh, from American uh, leading companies really taking uh, a very decisive commitments and action and stating very clearly that they will continue to deliver on the Paris Agreement. So, so if 
the contributions towards the Paris Agreement are voluntary. And if the Trump administration has already uh, dismantled key parts of the Obama administration's plan to keep U.S. emissions under that 25% or 25 to 28% goal, including by dismantling the, the Clean Power Plan, then really what's the point of, of leaving the Paris Agreement? Couldn't you just stay in while simultaneously undermining its ultimate goal? Well, look, there's there's no question that the um, environmental roadblocks and the policy positions that the current administration has taken that are, um, you know, undermining the uh, the path that the previous administration had had um, laid out are going to make um, the, the the achieving the targets uh, harder and more expensive. Um, but as I was saying before, even though this will, federal action will definitely um, will, will likely slow climate action, we're already seeing very significant action being taken by by states, by cities, by companies, and we will need a lot more of that to be able to to continue and to maintain the momentum. And the other fact is that these are the market forces are already uh, very much in moving in the direction of a clean energy revolution or transition. Um, you know, renewable energy jobs in the U.S. at this point already outpace coal jobs. Um, coal is as a is as an industry is uh, being has been on its way out for several decades now because market forces are just moving in a different direction. So, yes, it will be very difficult. It will be more difficult for the U.S. to meet its targets. But between the action, the very decisive action that we're already seeing from, from action below the federal level, if I can put it this way, as well as market forces, I think the direction of travel is, is quite clear. I mean, if you think about the fact that, for example, um, Texas, um, which you think of as a state that's very much embedded in a fossil fuel um, industry and that really uh, privileges fossil fuels, actually has more wind power installed than any other state because of deregulations in the utility market and, um, and, and subsidies that were introduced. Everything's so bigger really in Texas. Yes, absolutely. Everything's bigger in Texas, but but Texas, the fact that Texas is the is has greater installed wind power than any other state speaks to the kind of market forces and to the fact that the the direction of travel, I think, is quite clear. And that's what I I would understand is something that within the G7 that just occurred and uh, in the communications that are being sent by some of the world's largest companies, including the most important Fortune 500 companies in the U.S., asking Trump to maintain and to keep the U.S. within the Paris Agreement very clearly what they're what they're listening to are those market signals. Mm -hmm. So can. We talk a little bit about what the diplomatic implications might uh, might portend for the U.S. pullout of of the Paris Agreement. So, you know, the the United States was very central to giving birth to the Paris Agreement. Uh, you know, with with uh, leadership under Obama and, and Secretary of State John Kerry. Um, so, without sort of the U.S. at the table, how might negotiations be any sort of more or less fundamentally different as um, negotiations for the implementation of the Paris Accords continue uh, as as they're supposed to? Well, look, that's a good question, and what's interesting is what I am about to say five or six, seven years ago would have been absolutely impossible. So we're already 
and, and what, what do I mean by that? I think that if we were seven years ago, um, you, we would have a, a decision like this by the U.S. would have had a very, very huge seismic impact in the negotiations. What we're seeing today is that there is much more distributed leadership and that the momentum, the traction, the direction of travel around climate change and climate action is so decisively moving in the direction of this clean energy transition that all countries um, are starting to really can, can, can look to the fact that even without the U.S., the Paris Agreement will continue to be implemented. If you look at what are the other major emitters that are on uh, uh, that are that need to sign up to Paris, look at um, China and India, two countries that are major emitters and that have very very clearly signaled both of them that regardless of what the U.S. does, they will continue to deliver on their Paris commitments. That are already taking very clear and decisive action at national level that are boosting their investment in renewable energy and taking enormous leadership, indeed uh, um, getting uh, enormous potential and innovation for their domestic industries from this clean energy revolution. You see the EU maintaining the kind of momentum and leadership that they have always maintained. You see the fact that the G7 meeting uh, that that, um, just took place the communique was essentially a G6 plus one. All of the countries that were there said very clearly, we stick to the Paris Agreement, and they acknowledged the fact that the U.S. was not ready to or hadn't yet taken a decision. We have the upcoming G20, where again we're expecting to see enormous momentum on the part of, of other countries. We have the upcoming um, summit with the EU and China and Canada. So you start to see the fact that in the face of uh, uncertainty regarding what the U.S. position will be, the major leaders, the most important countries in terms of reducing um, uh, climate um, greenhouse gas emissions are stepping up to the table and not timidly, decisively. Look at Merkel's comments after the G7, which she was referring to and one of the issues that she highlighted was that the talks had been unsatisfactory because of issues around climate change. So the message right now is that climate change is no longer a sideshow or an additional element to be um, considered within the international diplomatic agenda. It is as important as some of these other issues around, for example, trade or refugees and migration, which are such hot-button pressing issues of our time. Other leaders are understanding that climate change is not just the moral imperative, the existential imperative of our time. So, so, so that, it, it, that, that, sorry, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it sounds like it's fair, it's fair to say that um, the decision by the Trump administration to pull out of the Paris Agreement really is, is, will not have huge global implications that the world in a way has already moved on from u.s leadership you know in in the face of the unpredictability of the trump administration no look i wouldn't want to overstate it in the sense that it will not have an impact it will have an impact it will have an impact um on particularly on countries that were not um as supportive of the paris agreement countries that um still have concerns about what signing up to the Paris Agreement uh, could imply for them because of issues around historic um, uh, emissions. 
But the fact that countries, that the key countries within what's called the G77 in China, which is the main negotiating group of uh, developing countries, the fact that China and India, which are such decisive players in that space, are saying that they will continue and they will maintain their commitments to the Paris Agreement speaks to economic enlightened self-interest. Mm-hmm. So it, that's and that's what I meant earlier when I said that this that what I what I was about to say would have been impossible six or seven years ago because six or seven years ago if the U.S. had pulled out it's very likely that the political signals coming out of countries like China and India would have been very much well we also walk away from the mm-hmm. table well, and that's not what we're hearing well I mean is there going to be any sort of cascade like will other countries that are on the fence I mean I don't know the kind of countries that you referenced earlier might might include you said historic emitters who don't want to perhaps be as aggressive uh, on their implementing their their Paris agreements like might other countries follow the US out the door I don't think that other countries actually will 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 pull away from the Paris agreement I think that the political implications and repercussions of of so doing are are really quite significant if we look at um, uh, the credibility and the importance that we were just talking about in terms of what uh, you know the repercussions could be. We were just looking at what the you know the kind of communications and discussions that we had around the G7. These are very very much issues that are uh, at the forefront of the of the political international agenda. So um, it would be I think that countries rather than pulling out would rather question whether they uh, need to, how ambitious they have to be in fulfilling their national commitments. But again, the countries that are the most decisive players are signaling not just that they will uh, stay in Paris, but that they will ramp up, continue to ramp up their ambition uh, because it makes economic sense, because it furthers their um, their research and development agendas, because it creates enormous opportunities for investment and for innovation. So uh, can I maybe present like a provocative thesis to you to, to, to wrap up? So... Um, if you uh, assume that sort of the the, Repub- the 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 U.S. administration under Donald Trump is is sort of not an administration that that looks kindly towards implementing climate, you know, things that might benefit the climate, um, not having U.S. representatives at the table during the in the kind of in the weeds negotiations that are happening now under the Paris Accord or during those five year ramp up meetings. Uh, in which countries are supposed to get together to try to revise and raise their ambitions might actually be a good thing. You don't have the U.S. like kind of, um, you know, throwing, uh, uh, you know, a stick in the gear shift sort of thing. Well, look, I think that um, Tillerson said it himself, that it's better to be at the table and it's better for the U.S. to be at the table. The coming years are important because we, uh, you know, the international community is going to be, um, if if I can put it this way, making Paris operational, um, figuring out the, the rules, the guidelines that will underpin the agreement. So it is good to have everybody at the table. It will still have a place at the table because it's uh, it takes three years for that to kick in. And one would hope that the U.S., which has in the past always very strongly advocated for strong transparency, because what you measure matters. A ton is a ton is a ton. You have to make sure that everybody's delivering uh, what they've committed to and that the accounting is harmonized and comparable, that the effort of different parties is comparable and and, uh, can be um, measured accurately. That has always been in the interest of the U.S., and I would be very surprised if even under uh, this, this scenario that you're positing it, 
that you're positing, it wouldn't be also in the U.S.'s interest to maintain a very clear uh, focus and a clear emphasis on maintaining and ensuring that the new regime is as transparent as possible so that all parties can be can be held accountable. This is something that's in the interest not just of the U.S. Uh, government, but also in the interest of U.S. businesses and, and other uh, American constituencies. Uh, well, Paula, thank you so much for time. This was very helpful. All right. Thank you to Paula. And now here is my conversation with Pete Ogden, the Vice President for Energy, Climate, and the Environment at the United Nations Foundation. Well, I think the trajectory will uh, will remain unchanged, which is that the world is moving towards an ever cleaner economy. Uh, renewables are being added both domestically and globally to our power sector at a rate that exceeds that of fossil fuels. And so we see that transition happening. You see it in investment patterns. You see it in um, the various federal, uh, state, and local policies of countries around the world. And uh, so that, that, I think, will continue. I think the question is, is what is the United States doing in forfeiting the opportunity to continue to be a leader mm-hmm. uh, at the federal level uh, in this space? And when uh, the other alternative is to be uh, to be a leader, to continue to be a leader globally, to help to shape uh, the global economy, uh, to compete in the in the emerging clean energy economy of the 21st century, and ultimately to um, help to solve one of the great crises of our time, which is climate change. So, so can you answer that question? So, what does the U.S. forfeit <laughs> by um, abdicating? Uh, itself at the federal level? Because you do have states and you have Mm -hmm. cities that um, have kind of redoubled their pledges in the wake of yesterday's announcement. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, uh, you know, the federal government obviously has a very important role to play. So what is the the U.S. federal government kind of giving up? You're you're right that we have seen in in fewer than 24 hours uh, an outpouring of of support for um, uh, ongoing continued climate action uh, across the country uh, and across the, the whole world. Um, uh, I think in many states you've seen, um, as you say, that there has been a recommitment to building this clean energy economy. What that means in terms of the ultimate pace, you know, that's difficult to project, of course. I mean, are we going to look back and is this going to actually catalyze more, even more action than we would have seen before? Mm-hmm. Uh, or... Uh, or are we going to see uneven distribution in terms of how which some pockets of the country that are moving, you know, moving to capture these opportunities much more effectively than others? Um, I think that you know the, it's the the Trump administration has has already announced and, tr- and set in motion attempts to try to repeal or, or uh, reopen for potential weakening a uh, series of federal climate standards. How how successful they will be in their attempts to do that is still an unknown. A lot of them are instituted and implemented through a through a, you know through a very robust legal regulatory. Yeah, you process. can't just like by fiat uh, uh, erase yeah. some of these these targets. One thing I yeah, wanted to Supreme talk about Court, was your right. um, was yeah. was your discussion of, of what what you mentioned about the implication or the politics of this Trump announcement at the municipal level. I mean, it brings back this conversation I had with Mayor Kasim. 
Reid of Atlanta at the World mm-hmm. Government Summit in Dubai, which mm-hmm. is like this big kind of sustainable development yeah. summit. And he said the unpopularity of, of Trump gives him the kind of political leverage in his deep blue city to pursue um, these kind of climate mitigation strategies and kind of package them as being part of like the hashtag resistance, you know, and, and, and mm-hmm. it's it, in, in a way, and you're kind of seeing that in, in the 24 hours since this announcement has been made that mayors are kind of trying to one up each other by showing how much they're standing up to Trump by implementing, by being green, by, by implementing these kinds of Paris, Paris climate goals at, at the, the local level. Well, I mean, I think that's the, you know, that's the question. I mean, whether the Paul, you know, I don't know, or, you know, I don't really know what the, you know, the ultimate political, you know, ramifications of this will be. But certainly, as you say, there are places where, um, you know, the opportunity here to demonstrate that your, that your, um, your values are, when it comes to protecting the climate and the environment and your interests when it comes to protecting the climate environment are not coincident with the, what, with the announcement to withdraw from the Paris climate agreement that we heard yesterday, you know, that can be a, that, you know, that might be a motivating factor, but the truth is also that there are a lot of places across this country that are not, you know, it's not simply a red and blue issue. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, alternative and renewable power in Texas uh, and in Iowa and there are lots of um uh and in and in particular cities so it, that are that are you know p- you know maybe blue cities in red states and uh where uh where there's there are a lot of jobs in the clean energy sector um and there's a lot of economic opportunity and there's a lot of people who value the environment and value and believe that the United States should be um part of a is is should be a leader when it comes to these issues, they want U.S. leadership because they they believe that with U.S. leadership, our you know our 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 own environmental, economic, security interests are all going to be uh, most effectively advanced. With the alternative being that we disengage, we forfeit that responsibility at the federal level, and then you know, and then our our takers rather than sort of creators of our. Uh, 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 of, of the cl- of you know the climate um, that uh, process that's underway. So, how um, looking sort of internationally at the diplomatic implications of this decision, how do you see the U.S. not having a seat at the table in the ongoing conversations about Paris, whether it's through like the the, the COP process, which is this conference of parties yeah. that meets every yep. was it every year or every two years? Yep, every year. Every, every year. year. The, the next meeting's in Bonn. That is supposed mm-hmm. to kind of be a follow-on review. Of the Paris Agreement, mm-hmm. and also mm-hmm. like an underlying oh, conversation right. about global conver- about I global see. climate yeah. change. So, h- how will the U.S. non-participation in Paris have an implication on how sort of global the global diplomacy over climate change proceeds? Uh, well, what's a little uncertain here is what exactly um, U.S. participation is in this formal process over the next few years, because. In point of fact, you can't actually um, set in motion the withdrawal procedure uh, uh, for a year after it co- until a year after uh, it comes into effect, and then it takes several more years after that point when you've sort of notified your intent to withdraw for it to happen. It, all in all, it takes you know about four years. So um, 
uh, so in fact, they're going to be living in this sort of limbo, uh, potentially, where they'll signal their intent to withdraw, but still be party to the agreement. Um, so whether there's an empty seat at the table, I'm I am not sure at this point. I think at least for the next few years, it's sort of it's going to be a question as to how to how to manage what's going to be a very um, fraught uh, position for the United States. So one of the more immediate um, implications, it seems, is that China in particular and the EU and in China, the EU and China together seem to be kind of taking that mantle of, of climate leadership from the United States. What kind of implications does that have for how diplomacy proceeds? Do you think? Well, I mean, you know, this the, the you know the interesting thing about the Paris Agreement is how important it was to get the U.S. and China to both um, see eye to eye on what an agreement would look like that could work for both of them. And, you know, that was a fundamental challenge before Paris. In the Kyoto Protocol, we ended up with a structure of an agreement that didn't ultimately work for the United States. We were never able to join the agreement um, and the protocol and uh, as a result, you know, fun, fundamentally, you're, you had a, an agreement that everyone realized was ultimately could not be the long-term solution to the challenge. Um, when, you know, one of the primary diplomatic achievements for the Obama administration had been to really focus on building out, uh, building up with China, a strong enough relationship on climate policy, not that everything you know, that there weren't other sorts of challenges and relationships, but on climate policy to figure out how to develop a structure that could both accommodate their, you know, their interests uh, and at the same time work for other countries, developed and developing countries, and that would be, you know, sufficient uh, to, to start the world towards a, you know, solution to a challenge that is, you know, the quintessential tragedy, the commons challenge where, you know, pollution in any part of the world affects, you know, people everywhere in the world. And um, that was a critical part of it. I think what's... What, and it, it, what was, people, it was that, that bilateral agreement between the U.S. and China yeah. several months or even yeah. like a year before the Paris yeah. was, was signed that uh, in yeah. which the United States committed to basically reduce its, its carbon emissions by something like 26 to 28% by 2025. Mm -hmm. China had exactly. like a similar commitment. I, I, I can't rattle off, well, rattle it off at the top of my head, but it, was, it, it had, it had its own commitment. It, they both had different commitments. What they did is you're right about a year before Paris, both China, you know, president Obama and Xi Jinping stood by side by side and said in an agreement, here is, here's what our commitments would look like. Here's what our respective targets would be. And it signaled to the world that that was, that the agreement that had been organized and structured had the full support um, of, or that this, that there was a, there was a world in which a negotiated outcome that could include these two key countries. And, and, and so then uh, other countries and, and, started putting forward their own And so all the other right? countries yeah. started fl flowing in, and the agreement still had to be, you know, negotiated. I mean, you know, it was still a, uh, an intensive year and an absolutely monumental achievement to push that into a full-blown agreement. But the notion, the idea, the signal that that sent to the world that, you know, not that the U.S. and China were, were you know, these people who had, who had these two countries that, that, you know, historically had always... Um, had really had always 
found themselves, you know, lar- you know, in in much more in, in an adversarial posture in these negotiations, had had figured a path forward, and also that were just embracing the domestic uh, commitments themselves. The idea that you know that this was this was of course about you know a, an international architecture, but at its heart, you had the world's two largest emitters, polluters saying that this is what they were doing because this is what they saw was in their national interests. They both wanted to cut these, cut their pollution and, and build their clean energy economies. And so it wasn't just diplomat. It wasn't just the diplomatic um, significance of it, but it was, the, it was the material fact that the rest of the world could see this is what the 21st century was going to be about. Uh, uh, and these, the two biggest economies we're standing side by side and saying we're both trying to get there as fast as, as we can. Uh, well, Pete, thank you so much for your time. This was helpful. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Paula. Thank you to Pete. And I should disclose that the United Nations Foundation supports UN Dispatch, the blog I edit. In other news, I got some good posts coming up. Very excited for conversations that I have on the schedule. I don't want to reveal too much. I'll I'll leave you hanging a little bit. Also, uh, several of you have reached out to me asking for that list of Twitter users that I find useful to follow. Just send me an email if you'd like me to send you one of those. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.